like Mary 2,000 years ago, first and foremost, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, um, what God had already done, but we also wait in expectation for Jesus to come again, ushering in the fullness of his kingdom, what God has yet to do. And not just Jesus coming back in person for the second coming when all things, we're talking about Jesus showing up in our lives, coming in our lives where we need him the most, in our circumstances, in our family, in our workplace, in our mind, in our hearts. And that's what Advent is about. And what we're really talking about is the already but not yet. It's a paradox, the already but not yet, the Savior who has come but who is still coming again, the kingdom that has come but is still being ushered in. If you think about it, our lives are constantly lived in the already but not yet, aren't they? Like we're, this is something that's completely familiar to us. Uh, Shane Claiborne, uh, Claiborne, he's one of uh, Dave Gibbons' friends. He's wrote phenomenal books, but this is what he says. But this waiting is not a passive waiting. It is an active waiting. As any expectant mother knows, this waiting also involves preparation, exercise, nutrition, care, prayer, work, and birth involves pain, blood, tears, joy, release, community. It is called labor for a reason. And likewise, we are in a world pregnant with hope. And we live in the expectation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. As we wait, we also work cry, pray, ache. We are the midwives of another world. Ying, you are a midwife of another world. JP, you are, we are all midwives of another world. This is what it means to live in the tension of the already but not yet. We have faith in Christ's finished work but we still await its manifestation in our lives. We believe that Jesus conquered death, but we still live in the midst of sickness and pain and disease. We believe Jesus overcame sin, but we still struggle with greed and lust and unforgiveness. We believe a Savior has come, yet we live every day expectant, waiting and longing for Jesus to come again. We wait for answered prayers and breakthroughs and fulfilled promises. This is what it means to focus on the already but not yet. And this is what Advent is about. We get to celebrate that Jesus came first and foremost, but we get to posture our hearts, intentionally posture ourselves in expectation for Jesus to come again. And so as we get into today's story, keep all of that in mind. We are in the tension between the already and not yet. This is what Advent is about. Now, we're going to read a story from the Gospels that most people don't start with. Among the Gospels, most of the stories about Jesus' birth starts with the angel appearing to Mary, right? Um, But Luke begins the story a little differently. He starts by telling this small, seemingly unrelated story about Elizabeth and Zechariah who give birth to John the Baptist. Um, How many of you are fans of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I am a huge fan of the MCU. And what, they're like 21 films in. You know by now that the MCU, they tell two types of stories, right? The first are the big stories, right? Where the entire world is at stake. Like if the heroes don't pull through, the world is going to end. The whole entire universe hangs in the fate of the balance, in the balance of these Avengers and these superheroes. Think Avengers, think Endgame, think, think Eternals, big stakes. But they also tell these smaller stories, Street-level stories where the fate of the universe isn't on the line, 
where the entire world isn't at stake, where it's just a story about our character overcoming an obstacle in their life. I mean, think Spider-Man Homecoming. Peter Park, it's literally just a story about Peter Parker trying to impress his girlfriend's dad and finds out his girlfriend's dad's a supervillain, and he just fights him. It's a small story. The world isn't at stake. The universe isn't on the line. Think Ant-Man. Think Hawkeye, if you've been watching that on Disney+. Plus. And what, what a lot of critics do is they criticize these smaller films because they have such quote-unquote low stakes, right? The universe isn't online. The world isn't at stake. But I love these smaller stories because they're character-driven, but also because these smaller stories enhance the quality of the bigger story being told. They play an important role in fleshing out the grander narrative. Listen, you don't weep watching that endgame scene like Ying does where Captain America has Mjolnir or whatever that's called. And he says, Avengers assemble. You don't weep in that moment. I know so many people cried in that moment. You don't weep in that moment if you don't have all the smaller stories that were told that contribute to that grander narrative. And here in Luke, the author begins by telling a smaller story that helps us better understand and appreciate the grander story being told. And so I'm going to do something I don't do often, just read straight from Scripture. We're going to read this story together, Luke 1, 5 through 18. Not even going to try to paraphrase the story. Let's just go through it right now. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many of the people to Israel, of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So here's a story. Zachariah, Elizabeth, childless. They've been trying and trying their entire lives, their entire time together. Nothing. Now they're in their old age, way past the age where childbirth was possible. And after experiencing disappointment, after disappointment, after disappointment, they were hopeless. And it's in this hopelessness, in this bleak situation where the angel shows up, appears to Zechariah, and he tells him, your prayers have been answered, and we're going to give you a son, and he's to be called John, and he's going to make a way for the Savior of the world. And you're thinking, man, shouldn't Zechariah be ecstatic? 
Like he's been longing and praying for this for years, for decades. But what was his reaction? He says, Angel, are you sure? Like, what have you been smoking? Like, do you not know that we are old in age? Do you not know that it's impossible for us to give birth right now? Do you know we've been trying for years and years and years? I don't know, Angel. I don't know how true this can be. You know, I used to read this story and think, come on, bro. Like, come on, Zachariah. Have a little faith. Shouldn't you be happy that God is finally answering your, your prayer? How could you question this amazing gift that God is bringing you? And I think sometimes we kind of run into this temptation where we turn biblical characters into caricatures of actual human beings. I want you to put yourself for a moment in Zachariah and Elizabeth's shoes. How would they be feeling? I want you to imagine, you're telling me, this is what he's saying, you're telling me, after all this time of waiting and waiting and hoping and longing and praying and believing and disappointment after disappointment, after years and decades of trusting in you, God, and waiting for you to answer our prayers and fulfill your promise, now you're choosing to do this? After years of praying and being met with silence, now you're going to give us a child. Surely we could understand Zechariah's reluctance to believe. Because how many of us have waited for God to move in our lives only to be met with silence? How many of us have cried out to God in prayer, believed for miracles and breakthroughs, waited for God to fulfill promises only to find that nothing has changed. God, how long until you restore our broken family? How long until we see the end of racism and police brutality and shootings? How long until I find my spouse and settle down? How long, God, how many of us have been met with silence in our prayers, in our longing and believing? Reflecting on Zechariah, um, Barbara Brown Taylor, who has phenomenal, phenomenal commentary on this, she says she wonders if Zechariah's response was not so much the sin of unbelief, but rather the failure of imagination, the fear of yet more disappointment, and a habit, a lifetime habit of hopelessness. How many of us struggle to pray or believe because we're so scared of being disappointed again? For how many of us has hopelessness become a lifetime habit? Can you imagine that? Their entire lives praying and believing, God not responding. I mean, forgive me for not having faith when an angel shows up and says, now I'll do it. But I think we can understand what Zechariah was going through. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, I used to read this story and think, dang, how harsh, right? Zechariah believing for a lifetime, unanswered prayers. Angel shows up, and he shows a little bit of doubt, just asks a question. He doesn't even say, I don't believe you, angel. He doesn't say, why are you smoking? He says, he asks a question, how can this be because we're so old? And then the angel strikes him mute. 
I used to think, that's hella messed up. Like, come on, he's human. Like, can you understand what he's going through? And I used to think, man, this was a punishment for Zachariah's unbelief. He was made mute because of his sin of doubt. But I find it interesting, if you read on in Luke in the first chapter, the next story, the few paragraphs later, the angel appears to Mary, and this is a story we all know, right? The angel appears to Mary, and he tells her that she will give birth to the Savior of the world, even though she was a virgin, right? Impossible thing to believe. And her response, what was it? She says, how will this be? And I think, what's the difference between Zechariah and Mary's response But Mary is applauded for her faith throughout all of history. But Zechariah, he's the man of unbelief and doubt. And so God had to mute him and silence him. Like, it's kind of messed up. Like, why is there discrimination between the two? Which begs me to ask the question, what if Zechariah's muteness wasn't a punishment from God, but a gift from God? What if Zechariah's silence wasn't a punishment, but an invitation? to experience something more that God was doing, to enter into the divine. Why do I think this? Because in the time of silence, when Zechariah was unable to speak, something inside of him changes. In the time he was struck mute to the time that John was born, something transforms inside of him. Something Holy Spirit is moving within him in his silence. Because after Elizabeth gives birth to John, the first thing that Zechariah does is he starts singing and prophesying about the Messiah. I, don't, I haven't seen any of you guys bust out in a prophetic song. Zechariah busts out in a prophetic song. It says Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. The question is, what transformed this man who questioned and doubted God, argued with an angel, to someone filled with the Holy Spirit who sang a prophetic song about the Messiah? What transformed him? What changed him? Silence. The silence. What if it wasn't a punishment? but a gift. I believe that silence did something inside of him that nothing else could. One of my favorite pastors, Rich Velodas, he says this, what God does in us as we wait is often much more important than what we are waiting for. Woo! Some of y'all need to hear that right now. What God is doing in you while you wait is sometimes more important than the very thing you are waiting for. See, even though we can't see him or hear him or sense his moving on our behalf, he is speaking. He is moving. And it's in the silence where we learn to trust. It's in silence where we find rest in the peace that surpasses all understanding. You see, most of us, you know, we read that scripture, you know, that peace that surpasses all understanding, that transcends all understanding. We all want that peace that the Bible talks about, but we don't realize that in order to access that peace, we need to give up our need for understanding. We need to give up and lay down our control. And part of that means silencing the voices in our head that need and cry out for understanding and learning to embrace the mystery in our waiting. How many of you know in entering into silence, we enter more deeply into God's mystery? But I I mean, here for me, we're so uncomfortable with mystery, aren't we? Oftentimes the loudest voices in our heads at night are the voices crying out for understanding and control. 
God, why am I going through this? God, when are you going to move? Like, I need to know the exact date and time that I'm going to meet my wife or my husband. I'm going to need to know the exact date that I find breakthrough in my work. Like, God, when are you going to move? How are you going to do this? What are you going to do to resolve this? And we're always crying out, God, for understanding instead of learning to embrace the mystery. There's a peace that can only come when we learn to embrace the mystery and let go of our need for understanding and control, when we surrender our need to know everything. Erwin McManus, he he has this phenomenal quote about peace. He says, peace does not come because you finally have control over your life. Peace comes when you no longer need control. Come on, y'all. That is tweetable right there. I, I, Silence is the act of laying down our need for understanding and control. And in Zechariah's silence, he learned to lay down these things, to embrace the mystery of God, and to allow God to do the transformative work inside of him. Silence makes room for the fullness of God's healing. It's in silence where we learn to surrender our need for control and allow God to be God. And that's precisely where we find true peace. And so I want you to walk away with two revelations, two things that I want you to hold on to from this story. The first is this. Silence is an invitation to hear God's voice. Let me clarify. Silence is an invitation to hear God's voice more clearly. Zechariah is forced to pay attention in his silence. He can't speak. He witnesses every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month in great detail until his son is born. He enters into a season of attentiveness, of listening. Um, my ex-girlfriend in college did this, used to do this thing that, looking back on it now, I think is a little pretentious. Um, but she would take a vow of silence for a day. And so she would dedicate an entire day to not speaking. But, but the reason why I think it's a little pretentious is because, you know, she's seeing all our friends throughout the entire day, and they're just, like, left wondering, why aren't you speaking to us? And she's just kind of, like, silent, right? But one day, you know, I decided I want to try this. So I took a half day, and I said, I'm going to do a vow of silence, okay? And so I went throughout my day going to classes, you know, hanging out, eating lunch, st- stuff like that, and I was just silent for the entire day. I just wrote on my phone, um, vow of silence, so people understand, right? I want to make it as least, less pretentious as it should be. But I remember taking this vow of silence for half a day, and I tell you what, it was actually really powerful. Because when I stopped speaking, and when I said, I'm going to stop, even in my mind, I'm going to stop speaking, stop like trying to think, I'm going to try to empty myself and just listen and take in what's around me, I swear the birds sang louder. I swear people, when they were talking, I was able to really hear them. There's something about silence that increases our ability to be attentive. And I think in Zechariah's silence, he was able to hear more clearly than ever before the voice of God. How many of you know we hear God most clearly in silence? When we quiet the voices in our heads, when we silence the worries and fears and anxieties and doubts in our minds, when we quiet the noise of the world, that's why I love getting out in nature. A few weeks ago, we were in Yosemite, and I love laying down at night, and you can't hear a thing. 
you know, my neighborhood, you'll, you'll hear gunshots. And uh, down the street is where a lot of people um, drift with their cars. I think you, literally you could see donuts, you know, in, I don't know if, you, if you're a part of that scene. But I hear that at night, right? Sometimes Krista said the other night she heard foxes, like, talking to each other in the hill. I don't know how, how true that was. But, but we're, we're just constantly hearing things. But there's something about being in Yosemite where it's just completely silent. And there's just this greater attentiveness to what God is doing and saying all around us. I find that sometimes our words are just distractions, meaningless utterances that reveal our doubts and our fears and our insecurities more than they do our faith. You know, hear me, church, I find that the older I get, the more I've been walking with God. My prayer life sounds a lot less like, Father God, shoulda bought a Honda, but I bought a Hyundai. You guys know that joke? It's a shoulda bought a Honda, but I bought a Hyundai. You know, in, in the charismatic circle, sometimes they make you repeat that as a joke so you could get, get gift to tongues. It's stupid. Anyway, I find my prayer sounds a lot less like shoulda bought a Honda, but I bought a Hyundai. And it sounds a lot more like the sound of silence. I spend a lot more time in prayer not saying a single word these days, and I spend a lot more time just shutting up and listening because in silence we hear the voice of God more clearly. In silence we pay special attention to God moving around us. Hear me, church. Some of you have been wondering why God isn't speaking, and it's not that he's not speaking. Maybe your life is just too noisy that you can't hear him. And so we enter into these times of silence because it was a gift, a gift to Zechariah and a gift to us. Sometimes we'll find ourselves in seasons. Have you ever found yourself in seasons where you, you just have nothing to say to God? Someone asks you, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you really doing? Literally, I can't think. I have no words. We've been in seasons where we don't have the words and we think, man, these are desert seasons. These are valley seasons. These are seasons where I'm far from, listen, no, those are gifts to hear more clearly the voice of God. Seasons where we feel like we can't speak. So first, silence is an invitation to hear God's voice. But the second, really powerful, silence is an invitation to hear the other silenced voices. It's interesting that the voice that was silenced in this story was the voice of the priest. Priests were perhaps one of the most listened to voices of the time. They were also the most trusted voices during their day. On the flip side, women were not. Just a reality. Just look at the Bible. Most of scripture was dictated by men. Women weren't heard. Their stories weren't told or written down. Many times their stories weren't even believed. But in this story, it's significant that the story was not told through the priests, the people that most people listened to at the time, but through women whose voices we normally wouldn't hear. It's like going to um, the next Spider-Man movie, and the entire movie, Peter Parker can't speak, right? And it's like Mary Jane is the only one that has dialogue. It's, it's, it's the same way. The people that spoke the most, that people were listening to, in this story was silenced. And the people that no one would expect to tell the story, nonetheless believe, were the ones telling the story. A good friend of mine, Michael Kim Eubanks, he pastors out in San Leandro. He says this, Zachariah's silence now makes a way for us to listen to some people that we might not have listened to otherwise. It is the voices that have been silenced that become our prophets. It is the voices that have been discarded who become 
are priests. He goes on to say the only experiences we get from this point until the birth of Jesus are the words of women. The Holy Spirit moving in the wombs of women. The prophetic utterances of women who will believe this story. You know, someone recently uh, commented, they're like, Mickey, like, why do you let so many people at your church preach on Sundays? And honestly, um, in fact, I was looking back on this year. When this year is over, I'll have preached the least amount of Sundays ever in my entire pastoring career with only 34 sermons out of 52 Sundays. That's a world record for me. It's great. And one reason is because, you know, I still want to love ministry in 10 years. I don't want to burn out. Okay, that's honestly one of the reasons. But the second reason is this. I believe God speaks through the voices of our people. And I believe we need to make room to hear their voices, to hear the stories of what God is doing in each and every one of us. And someone asked me recently, but, but Pastor Mickey, how do you balance how do you balance that? How do you balance that and having reverence for God and the pulpit? Because none of these people went to seminary, right? And then I told them, oh, you don't get it. It's because of my reverence for God that I allow our people to speak. See, 2,000 years later, and we still don't get it. It wasn't the educated or the religious or wealthy that God chose to usher in his kingdom. It was the forgotten ones. It was the overlooked. It was the poor, the uneducated, the misfits, the rebels, the runaways. It was the B character in the story, not the A character. It was the ones that no one expected. It's not that he doesn't use people of privilege to do his work, but he has such a heart to give a voice to the voiceless to elevate the voices that have otherwise been silenced or forgotten to those the world would often overlook or undervalue. And 2,000 years ago, God chose the most unlikely people to spark a global movement of the Holy Spirit, people that the church silenced and overlooked, people that wouldn't be caught dead in church, the people that the church was so offended that God was using. Who would those people be today? Maybe it might be the immigrant or the refugee. Maybe it's the women. Maybe it's the person that didn't go to seminary. Maybe it's the poor, the uneducated. Maybe it's the gay, the lesbian. Who are the ones that would be so offended that, man, God is using them, but he's not using us? My prayer recently has been, God, I do not want to miss it. I don't want to miss what you're doing in our day and age because I'm so offended that it's not us. With my four painstaking years in seminary, I have to get comfortable thinking, God might not use me to usher in the next great move. Maybe God will use that person that's sitting in my congregation that I feel like is so far from God, but God is doing something in the voices that otherwise weren't heard. God, help me be silent enough to hear the voices that you're speaking through, even if it offends my theology or makes me uncomfortable. And give me the courage to elevate those voices, to make room to hear those voices as you did 2,000 years ago. It wasn't the story of the priest or the pastor. It was the story of the woman. Maybe God needs to silence our priests again. Just kidding, not me. But maybe God, you hear what I'm saying. Maybe God is speaking through people that we wouldn't expect that he's speaking through in our day and age. And so silence gives us, it's an invitation for us to listen to the silenced voices. I, um, I really feel this more and more the last few years. I've been a lot of, I've met a lot of church planters and been in networks. And 
honestly, most of them are filled with white pastors, white male pastors. Um, even this cohort that I'm a part of, I'm one of five Asians in the room out of hundreds of pastors. And I feel it sometimes. I feel that my voice isn't valued or heard. And I'm sure many of you that you've been in similar spaces, maybe in your workplace, maybe even here in San Francisco, whether it's your orientation or your ethnicity, whatever it might be, I want you to know that God hears your voice and your voice is so important to what he's doing here on earth. The question is, who are the voices that God wants you to give an attentive ear to? You know, this Saturday we go to Mobilize Love. This is the perfect opportunity to do that. Sorry, I'm just trying to plug this, but it really is. When's the last time you sat with someone that isn't from your neighborhood, that's from a neighborhood that's less privileged than yours? When's the last time you sat with a single mother with four children that's struggling to make ends meet? When's the last time you heard their story? When's the last time you heard what is God saying to you or doing in your life? Listen, more than the bounce house, which I'm really excited for, I'm really excited just to talk to people, to hear their stories, to, to hear the silenced voices and hear what God is doing through them. Because who knows, maybe, maybe God is announcing revival or announcing the ushering in of his kingdom through these voices. Silence gives us an invitation to hear God's voice more clearly, but silence is an invitation to hear the silence voices. And in this season, I want to invite you to do both. This season, I want us to speak less. I want us to silence even the voices in our heads, the noise that's all around us. And I want us to make space to hear the voice of God. And I want us to intentionally pursue voices that have otherwise been silenced, that we don't have easy access to, where we literally have to get out of our comfort zone You know, that's why I love our speaker, Dave Gibbons, that came a few weeks ago. Like, his life embodies this. He speaks to everyone and anyone, his Uber driver, his Lyft driver, to CEOs and Facebook execs. Like, he doesn't discriminate whose voices he allows speaking into his life. And I want to live the same way. I want to be like that when I'm 50. I want to be like that right now. I believe that's the invitation today. And so this Advent, maybe God is inviting us to enter more deeply into times of silence. Maybe it's time for us to reclaim the gift of silence demonstrated so long ago by Zechariah. Maybe we need to see what the gift of quiet has to teach us this season. And so for the next moment, we're going to practice this. I'm not going to play, you know, beautiful Christian cry music. We're going to sit here in utter silence, and it might be uncomfortable for some of you. You're going to hear the heavy breather next to you in their mask. You're going to hear the uncomfortable noises of people squirming in their chairs, but I want you to pay special attention and listen for the voice of God in silence. What is he saying to you right now? So right now, why don't we close our eyes, and I want to spend a moment in silence And as we wait here in silence, I'm not even going to prompt us very much. I'm just going to say this. I'll open us up with a prayer, and this is the invitation from God today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us today. Some of us need a word. Some of us need to hear your voice. Right now, God, in our silence, would you speak? As you did to Zechariah. I pray we would view this silence as a gift and not as a curse. We make room for you to speak right now, God. Would you speak?